Hello, and welcome to episode 95 of Commonplace with poet, professor, scholar, critic, Jason Schneiderman. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Jason Schneiderman is the author of four books of poems, Hold Me Tight, Primary Source, Striking Surface, and Sublimation Point. He edited the anthology Queer, a reader for writers. His poetry and essays have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, including American Poetry Review, The Best American Poetry, Poetry London, Grand Street, and The Penguin Book of the Sonnet. He is an associate professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community College and teaches in the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. Jason is also a dear friend, a great dating consultant, and the person I'm most likely to text late at night with questions about Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, anything having to do with queer theory or literary criticism. I am so excited to share this long conversation with you. This one really feels like a celebration. A celebration of Jason's most recent book, Hold Me Tight, published last year by Red Hen Press. A celebration of Pride Month. A celebration of having lived through the pandemic to the point where we could safely record this conversation in person, face to face. Jason and I talk about marriage, divorce, gay history and activism, tenderness, anger, embodiment, thirst traps, clickbait, the end of modernism, how to part with books when they feel like part of you, and so much more. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Jason is a brilliant poet and literary and cultural critic. He is vulnerable, private, thoughtful, and incredibly courageous. Jason and I recorded this conversation in my apartment on the Upper West Side in the spirit of celebration, and I think you'll hear that in our voices. At the same time, the past months, for some years, have been very, very tough. Many parts of the world are still actively struggling with COVID-19, as are some pockets of the United States. I've heard from many friends and students who are living in places with very low rates of COVID that they're experiencing a new, often very intense surge of anxiety or hopelessness just as things are opening up and going back to normal. In New York City, for example, the mood is exuberant but awkward and somewhat forced. I don't think we've come close to starting to process the death of 35,000 New Yorkers, the lasting health effects of long-term COVID, the lasting emotional, psychological effects of extended isolation, not to mention the long-term financial impact. On a personal note, June 15th was Commonplace's fifth anniversary and the 23rd anniversary of my wedding. In the past month, my youngest son turned 14, my oldest 22. The dog and I have had a very hard time adjusting to New York City, and for a while, all I could feel was trapped and angry about my circumstances. Re-listening to this conversation with Jason has been a balm, and many of the seemingly off-the-cuff things that he said have become new mantras for me. Things like, you can only be hurt in the life that you live, or when things are in flux, you forget what you already know. So whether you're in a celebratory mood or spending some time in an emotional underworld, 
I think you'll find this conversation good company. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books. Hold Me Tight, Primary Source, Striking Surface, Sublimation Point, and Queer, all by Jason Schneiderman. Ann Carson's Eros, The Bittersweet, and Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Many thanks to Red Hen Press, Oxford University Press, Ashland Poetry Press, Four Way Books, Princeton University Press, and Simon & Schuster for these wonderful books. All Commonplace patrons will get access to a watch list for Jason's Global Queer Cinema course. Jason's essay, How the Sonnet Turns from a Fold to a Helix, originally published in American Poetry Review in June of 2020. The text of Jason's unpublished poem, Stardust, which he reads in this episode. And Jason's favorite workout playlist. As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no institutional affiliations, and no... As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no institutional affiliations, and no corporate sponsorship. Commonplace is made possible by patron support. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron, please visit commonpodcast.com. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner organization will donate $200 to the Alley Forney Center, an organization chosen by Jason Schneiderman. The Alley Forney Center, located in Harlem, is committed to protecting LGBTQ youths from the harms of homelessness and empowering them with the tools needed to live independently. Lastly, I'd like to invite all of you to join Jason and me for a talkback on Friday, June 25th from 4 to 5 p.m. If you have questions for us, you can send them to Commonplace via email or social media, or just drop in and ask Jason and me yourself. If you can't make it, we will post the talkback to YouTube in a few weeks. And now, here's Jason Schneiderman. Hello, Jason Schneiderman. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. We are in my apartment on the Upper West Side of New York, 93rd Street, and I'm filled with delight to have you here. No Both, masks is a big deal. I know. No masks is pretty exciting. It's really... We, we are vaccinated, we should we say. Are, we, we are, are fully, fully vaccinated, vaccinated, and we are in the same room, and we are not wearing masks, um, and I do not feel that we are endangering each other, which is amazing. Although I have to put in a plug for continued mask use mm -hmm. in that I have not had a cold or flu in a year and a half. And it's super amazing. And I kind of hope that like we keep wearing masks on public transit, in grocery stores. Like I'm, I'm kind of into the masks as sort of a public health thing. You know, I, I want to like mark this moment, but also be aware of the fact that it's, I feel like a, a transitional moment and we're not sure like you said, what is to come. That is true on so many levels for me and I think for you as well in this moment and in this space. So I live here, but I don't live here. I've sold this apartment. I am still technically married. 
June 15th is going to be my 23rd anniversary. Um, But I just, as you know, was texting you last night that I was reading my divorce settlement. So do I live here? Am I married? Who am I? Am I a New Yorker? Am I something else? This is transitional. I don't know what the future is. Uh, Happy birthday to you. Oh, thank you. Yes, Uh, I'm halfway to 90. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Your birthday was yesterday. Happy Pride. Thank you. I was born on the first day of Pride Month. Pride, I mean, Pride celebrates me and Marilyn Monroe. So, right. So this this feels to me like a moment of a lot, a lot of celebration, but also so much unknown and so much complexity. Um, is it okay to, to, at some point in this conversation, talk about your impending divorce or not okay? Or I guess. I'm, I'm still, um, yeah. I mean, I just don't, it's, it's, I haven't sorted it out yet. Yeah. I don't really know what it means for me, for my work, for my life. Yeah. I mean, we, we can, I guess. I'm, I'm still a little raw. I'm, I might. Um, yeah. But it's, 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 you know, I always, because I, I am gay married and I was among the first to get gay married. I got a marriage license on the first day that it was legal. Wow. I, What's the, what was the date? I don't remember. I remember that the first day that you could get married, I think it was June 2nd of 2004, but the, but you got oh. the licenses early. So I was, I was at the town hall in Provincetown. And I got the license the first day you could get a license. And it was such a sweet day. Like I was riding my bicycle down this cobblestone street. I waved to the person at the used bookstore who was like hanging out the open shingle as I, I mean, it was really like an independent film from like the 1990s. Like, you know, Sarah Polly should have been like, you know, somewhere planting flowers in this little garden path. Um, and I didn't, I actually did not, we did not, get married the first day it was possible because I didn't want to be in the news. I didn't really want it to be, um, like I didn't want like photographers as we were leaving the courthouse or anything like mm. that. And so we got married on June 4th. And so, yeah, actually hmm. two days from now is my, um, something anniversary, um, 16, is that 16 mm. or it might be 17. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I always, I always said that, you know, marriage and 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 i've i've said a lot of things about about gay marriage because there was a whole kind of like anti gay marriage queer contingent who are right that the rights and responsibilities and privileges of marriage don't do a lot for homeless queer youth mm. don't do a lot for you know there are a lot of different groups and and marriage has like a really weird history like for trans people for a long time there were these highly contradictory court cases. So if, if, a, if a partnership, including a trans person or two trans people, um, tried to get married, the courts would typically rule against them either based on what they were assigned at birth mm. or on their current sex. Like there wasn't a single standard. Like it wasn't like, <laughs> oh, well, if you were assigned you know, differently at birth, you're in a heterosexual marriage. Or if you've transitioned to be a heterosexual couple, it was like the courts actually would sort of like go in and be like, no, no, no. <laughs> like We just don't like you either We just way. don't like you. Yeah. yeah. We're going to decide that you're really whatever it is that keeps you out of access to this institution. And actually, like, I mean, access to gay marriage goes back to the 70s um, that, you know, there were actually 
Um, there's a great story about the first municipality in the United States that extended marriage to same-sex partners. And this was in like 1971. Mm. Um, and it was challenged very quickly and there was a huge backlash. And I actually think that like one of the things that the left really needs to work on is that we don't have, we don't have really good tools for backlash. Like mm. we don't really anticipate backlash. We kind of think like, oh, once everyone has this, we're going to be, you know, everyone will like it so much that people won't complain. Um, and, it, and it makes so little difference. But actually, you know, we we often face these huge backlashes. Um, and but but the the great story is that is that right after the first marriage licenses had been issued to same sex couples, which and they were reversed, um, someone came and tried to marry his horse, hmm. and the woman who had said that you know. Part, party A and party B, they were like, what are we going to do? Like, this guy wants to marry his horse, and we, but we need a, a, a legal reason to not let this happen. And they, they ultimately, they asked him how old the horse was, and the no. horse was underage. So no. they were like, yeah, you can't marry your horse no. if he's underage. Yeah, because, you know, like, one of the things that happens when things are in flux is that you forget what you already know. And like the sort of the beautiful version of that is that you question everything and you're like, okay, well, why really do we need that? The bad version of that is you just get really stupid and you do terrible things. Um, but yeah, and I, but I always said that, you know, you never really know how married you are until you get divorced, that marriage is very much a custody arrangement. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, I, I mean, we're, I, I want to go to your book because you know, I could talk about this forever and ever. And you and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, I'm, you know, I love what you just said. When things are in flux, you forget what you already know. I think that's really true for me right now. And it's just everything feels in flux for me. But there's also, I feel like some things that are opening up, which I don't think I did ever know. Um, and so I, I'm having some pretty strongly negative feelings about marriage as an institution for women. And like, I remember like Doug Powell, who's a very close friend of mine, did not come to my wedding and was like, I don't go to weddings. Oh, that's, just like in opposition yeah, to the institution. Yeah, yeah. That's not what I do. And I, you know, and I wasn't personally offended by that. Um, and I very much wanted, marriage was not my top priority. I really wanted to have children. And Josh really felt strongly that he wanted to get married before having children. Um, but I wasn't anti-marriage. I wasn't, I, I didn't, I didn't. And, and, you know, when I hear people say like, oh, I'm getting married, I, I try a little inside. Well, You're like, now oh, I do. No. Now I do. Yeah. And I, and I try very hard not to say like, don't do it. Yeah. But you're right, like this process, uh, for me anyway, of, of untangling myself from this marriage, like I did not understand the extent to which the state was involved in my life as a, as a married person. I mean, I do think that like now, I do want to say something for marriage, which is that um, twice in the past few years, uh, my husband was hospitalized mm. and I had access to him because of marriage. Right. That the question over and over again was, are you married? And I was so grateful that I could be there. And one of the times I had just been doing all this research on Stonewall um, and particularly on Sylvia Rivera and the fact that my partnership 
was being granted dignity in this hospital setting. And they were letting me stay past visiting hours. They were letting me kind of like stay in the room. The doctors were so respectful. And, and this was something that I had spent so much of my life being really, really afraid of, um, particularly because of growing up during the first wave of the AIDS crisis. And, you know, growing up with stories of like, I mean, the archetypal story of AIDS was not just that one partner died, but that when one partner died, the family swooped in and you, the the other partner wasn't allowed at funerals, they mm. couldn't inherit anything, they lost apartments. And so, so being in the situation of being treated with dignity and having that relationship respected. And obviously, you know, like if I were polyamorous, that would, yeah, I would not have, you know, that, that would have been a more complex situation. But at least for me, you know, I'm, I'm not sorry that I got married. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that the institution of marriage is wonky and the history is bonkers. Um, like I didn't think gay marriage would happen during my lifetime. I really didn't. It really surprised me when, you know, like this switch flipped and suddenly like gays could serve in the military and gays could get married and the Andrew Sullivan agenda had been completed. And I was just like, whoa, no way. Like I wanted to do at, at my at my my father performed our ceremony, our Jewish ceremony, and he he would not encounter anything that sort of poked fun of the institution. So I wanted to do the Sarah, I wanted to do the thing where, where Michael would buy me from my father Oh wow! for a handkerchief. I was like, like, this is all like, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, because, because I was sort of, I was aware that this is, that this is a very, very strange property arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and my, and my dad was like, no, we're, we're not, we're absolutely not doing that. <laughs> Um, but I, but I'm not, I'm not sorry that I was part of it. And I, and, and also, I mean, we're, we're, we're having a very loving and amicable separation. And it's very, very painful. But um, years and years ago, in, in 2003, Michael had a letter to the editor saying that, because David Brooks was, you know, doing this whole thing about how those gays just don't understand that marriage isn't about property. And those gays should really understand that it's about happiness and love and blah, 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 blah. And Michael wrote a letter to the New York Times, which basically said, I can love Jason as much as I want forever. I want him to get my social security check when I die. Mm. And and actually, during the separation, one of the things he said was, was I, I looked into it and you can still get my social security check. Huh. And so, you know, like I'm not, I, I'm very much, so I take my, I take my political orientations from, I believe this is, I think I'm getting the name right, Hayden White. And um, he argues that there's kind of conservatism, which sort of wants to keep things the way that they are. There's liberalism, which wants to tinker around the edges. Okay, so this is the way things are. Let's let's tinker around the edges. And radicals are people who want to burn it down and start again. Um, and I and liberals are always in, a, in an awkward position because we're we're agreeing with the radicals that all this stuff is wrong, but then we're sort of like, but. But if you burn it down, things usually get worse. So, so I'm I'm very much a liberal, in like the old-fashioned sense of kind of wanting to tinker on the edges. So I'm I'm not sorry, um, that I got married, um, and I'm I'm really sad and I'm really grieving 
Um, and I guess, and a lot of people are going to find out that, I mean, I'm, I'm being pretty private about it mm. uh, or I was, <laughs> like, oh, sorry. The end of it. Did I out um, you? No, I, you didn't out me. Um, and I, you didn't out me. You asked a question mm-hmm. and I answered. So let's back up for sure. a second. Your most recent book, Hold Me Tight, which I, I have to, I'm, I'm going to like interrupt myself 15 times right now. But um, when I first got your book, I had this bizarre like association with it, which was there is a book called Hold Me Tight that I thought was going to save my marriage. It's a, it's a self-help book by Sue Johnson. I actually highly recommend it to people who are trying to save their relationships. Um, it did not end up saving my marriage, which I, I also do not regret getting married or like, I mean, for so many reasons, including that it was important to Josh to do before we had children. And I, I absolutely don't regret, you know, anything having to do with having children, um, but also because part of who I am in the world is like, I want to have experiences and being married was an experience that I really wanted to have. Being married forever was an experience that I wanted to have. I'm not having that. I'm not going to have that experience. And there's a lot of grief there and like revision of like who I think I am. Um, But I'm trying to think like, okay, well, so now I being divorced is not an experience I wanted to have, but I have to go back to thinking like at my core, I am a person who, who wants to investigate all these different kinds of experiences. And so now I'm going to investigate that. Okay. So anyway, your book, Hold Me Tight, which didn't save my marriage either, which is fine. (laughs) I apologize to anyone who thought they were getting a self-help book. (laughs) Well, I think this one might also be a self-help book in certain ways. Um, So it it has a, there are five sections of your book and I'm so proud of myself because um, I sort of have five questions that are related to each one of the sections and then questions that kind of like fold into each one of those um, I'm sort making of a face sections. of silent appreciation. I'm making a face <laughs> of like, oh my goodness, that's so exciting. Yeah. Um, so so the first section, maybe we, we could talk a little bit about the first section. And then I want to remind myself how we know each other and how we got to be such good friends, which, which I can't really remember right now. And just also give some context, you know, for, for who you are, you know, to the listeners, but I kind of don't want to do that until we talk about, um, the first section, which is not titled, but the, but it's one eight page poem in these skinny quatrains and the poem is called anger. And I love the way, first of all, I'm obsessed with anger, um, and, and have been, you know, thinking and talking and not writing about anger and, and, um, uh, just like all these different parts of anger, um, like how anger is, you know, female anger, male anger, um, anger as a life force. In any case, one of the things that I really love is that the book opens without kind of excuse, apology, preamble, context into the word anger. And then, and yet the form of the piece 
because it's in these quatrains, because they're very skinny, it's, I, I don't feel that you are angry with me as the reader. I don't feel attacked. Um, and so there's this really interesting, like, embodiment of anger without like a reenactment of it. Um, I was wondering if you could just like read from the sure. beginning of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I maybe I'll, I'll say this again after, but anger, anger can guide you to what's wrong. Anger. When I was angry, I kept asking how anger works. No one understood my question. Friends thought I was joking or being obtuse. Friends would say, what do you mean how anger works? Anger is anger, what are you asking? And I would say, well, is anger a finite material? Is anger like hydrogen and there's simply a certain amount of it in the universe? Is there a zero sum of anger, a law of the conservation of anger and can we pass it back and forth? Can you take my anger and leave me less? Can I take your anger and then have more? Is anger a renewable resource, like trees or coral reef, subject to natural rhythms and mass die-offs, forest fires and warming tides, cycles of growth and depletion? Is anger something you deplete like money, that you save or spend and is gone as it goes, or something replenished like ejaculate, more on the way as soon as you send some off, or is anger like ova, each egg coming on its own schedule until they run out. Is anger like pus, a response to a wound that you can drain or that you can heal? Or is anger like a gas you can vent because it is compressible but combustible? Or is anger like water that will explode the water balloon unless you tie it off at the right time? I thought someone had to know the answer because I was consumed by anger. It was under everything I did. I felt it all the time all the time, and it never departed. I didn't have a breakdown, though I asked friends if what I was experiencing was a breakdown. No, they said. A breakdown looks only like a breakdown. And I looked okay, but no one knew how to help me. And I told a friend that I wasn't okay. And she told me that I was okay, but the anchor was there all the time. Like a pair of shoes that were always between me and the ground I walked on. And I kept asking everyone how anger works. Can you drain it? Can you vent it? Can you stop it? Can you heal it? Can you trade it? Can you sell it? And no one, no one, no one, no one knew what I was asking until finally someone asked me to describe what I was feeling. And she said, you're not talking about anger. You are talking about rage. And I realized that I've never experienced anger. I've only known rage, which helped a lot which explained why I could only think about striking out and then not strike out, which explained why I knew which plants in my garden could be made into poisons and how, which explained why my daydreams turned into elaborate fantasies about harming people until I did the things I imagined to myself. And listen, please listen, I knew it was bad and I wanted out, but I couldn't write my way out of it and I couldn't think my way out of it, and I couldn't love my way out of it, and I couldn't read my way out of it, and I thought I would live with it forever, that I would contain it at whatever price I had to pay, and I'm telling you this, and I need you to listen because I'm saying that I do understand what it's like to want everyone else to suffer as much as you are suffering, and I understand 
what it's like to want to die, both to contain the pain of rage and to spread the pain of rage. And when you read of this mass murder or that suicide bombing, know these killers are not inhuman or monstrous, but rather that they are weak vessels for rage, that they are balloons that have burst with their rage, that they are pipe bombs made of flesh and bone, and peace is what I want more than anything else. But peace is so fragile, so easy to take, so easy to lose, and so they take it from you to feel less alone. And I'm out of it now because I thought I had done it to myself, but I didn't. I see that now. I'm closer to peace. I'm further from rage. I'm a bomb no longer ticking, but I was a bomb. Hold me tight. I was a bomb. Hold me tight. Thank you. So why is that the first poem of Hold Me Tight? It's, I, I sort of feel like this poem is, um, you know, the birth of the phrase Hold Me Tight, and it like sort of pops out at the end, but it's a, it's a surprising emergence in a way. Yeah, so um, many, many, many years ago, when I was putting together my first book, I put the really long, difficult poem at the end, mm. and Tom Slay said to me, you need to put that at the beginning because if you put it at the end, your reader is exhausted. By the time they get there, um, and it's sort of like, you know, when you're, when you first start teaching, you think, okay, I'll assign a little bit of reading um, in the beginning of the semester and then we'll keep building towards the end. And that's a terrible idea because if you do that, like once, whatever you do at the beginning, that's how much people allot for the reading. Mm. So if you do a novel at the beginning of the semester and then you give short stories, everyone's relieved and everyone's happy and they've made all this space. And so I think one of the things I've done with my books is put the really, like if you're with me by the end of the first poem, like it's going to be a much, like it's a smoother voyage to the end of the book. And and this particular book I think is, is really, um, it's, <laughs> there's, it's a lot. Like, I think this book is, is kind of a demanding book. Um, but that I, one, I was really surprised at how much people responded to the poem. Um, I had actually kind of expected people to be kind of mad at me that hmm. like at the end, I'm sort of empathizing with, and, and it's, I wrote it in the wake of the Pulse um, nightclub shooting. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this person. And, and as soon as there was, there were news reports that the shooter had been a regular, that this was someone who was basically trying to eradicate his feelings by eradicating the people who owned them, right? Mm-hmm. That, that he was, he was angry that he was feeling something, but it, it made perfect sense to me. And, um, and I was, I was, I kind of thought that people were going to be mad at me that I was sort of taking the wrong side. Um, but I, and, and I, there are times when I won't read this poem, like, like there are particular mass shootings, uh, cause we, and we have so many of them, mm. um, that depending on the circumstance, if I'm giving a reading and there's a mass shooting right before it, um, depending on the circumstances, I will or won't read it because there are some people who, <sighs> have 
I, I don't want to say that some people deserve empathy and some people don't, but I think that in terms of like the social imaginary that we're inside of, there are times when we can feel that sense of empathy and times when we can't. There are times when we, we need really different approaches and what will be healing is, is different. Um, but so yeah, so starting the poem with that, starting the book with that poem, um, I thought was a really important thing to do both to kind of like just calibrate the emotional landscape for the reader going in and also to kind of, you know, like the hard work's out of the way now, <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, that we can have a little more fun after this. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's so interesting the way it functions in the book. I mean, that last image is sort of the last part of the poem, the way that it builds uh, feels really connected to what I see happening in all of your work to some extent, like a, an, a question about um, the interior, a question about etymology, a question about history, a question about uh, a, a, a sort of recording of, I asked my friends you know, for, to tell me like, what's wrong with me or what's going on or what does this mean? Or, you know, somehow reaching out outside the self, you know, poetry as the location of the recording of, um, as you, as I heard you say in another interview, like the, uh, think, feel, um, or feel, think, was it feel, think, think, feel, feel, right. Which maybe we'll talk about in a minute, but you know, there, there's like the, the end is, is multiple, at least for me, both in terms of like, okay, hold me tight because I am a weak vessel for rage. And therefore, if you don't hold me tight, I may explode, but also hold me tight because you know, I was a bomb and, and, the you, which I, I read as both lover, other, reader, um, friend, um, another part of the self, like hold me tight despite how dangerous it is to hold tight to a bomb. Um, and uh, despite, uh, you know, so in that, in that second reading, the bomb is always going to go off. It's not about the weakness of the container. It's about the sort of possibly inherent pain and disaster of loving anyone, uh, of coming close enough to someone else, even if it's a book, even if it's, you know, language, like, like the language is a bomb. The, 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 you know, art is always going to explode. Um, and yet, we want to get close to it and, and hold it tight. Um, so I, I, I feel like maybe this comes back to your identification as a liberal because (laughs) you are not burning it down. Um, and, and the book, uh, this poem is, um, the form of the poem is inviting. It's not exhausting at all. Um, I couldn't stop reading it. The line breaks, the stanza breaks, the, um, it, it felt, um, you know, I wanted to be in that poem and stay in that poem. Um, and even at the end, 
I didn't feel exploded, but I felt like, woof, wow. And I, I mean, to me, the end, there's a thing that Whitman does that I used to really, really not like, where he's sort of like, what you think, I'll think, and what I think, you'll think, and like, I'm in your pocket, and you're carrying me around, and you're sitting on me, and that's kind of hot. Um, and I always found it like a little bit coercive. Mm-hmm. Um, that ending is is really asking the reader, in my mind, to, to cuddle. Mm-hmm. That like, like yeah. what's happening at the end of the poem is that if we can reach tenderness, um, there might be a way to diffuse the bomb. What I wanted the kind of arrival of that poem to be is that if we can find a kind of tenderness, then I, I don't think I realized this when I was writing the poem. And, and there's a thing that happens where after the book comes out, you suddenly see the poem in like a totally different way. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but I, I think that vi- I've come to understand violence really differently. Um, and I think that violence, violence is a refusal of the world as it is. Mm. That um, I used to think that, you know, like when someone or me um, punches a wall or breaks something, that what you're trying to do is prove to yourself that you still have power in the world. That violence is usually a response to feeling extremely powerless. And so um, an easy way to reassert power in an effective way um, a way that that's, doesn't feel good afterwards, but it's just to, to break something, to attack something. But I, I think that I, I've come to see violence much more as kind of, it's just this, this real refusal of what is, right? It's just this absolute refusal. Um, Wilde has a quote in The Portrait of W.H. where it, he, one of the characters says, no one kills themselves for what they believe in. They kill themselves for what they know isn't true that they need to prove to everybody else. Um, huh. And I think that violence, and, and we live with so much violence. Like we live with these mass shootings that we can't, we can't stop. Like, like it's, it's so weird to me. And, I, and I, so I, I think in the poem at least, what I wanted to resolve into was the idea of tenderness mm-hmm. as a kind of resolution. And I think that, I wanted the reader to go into the because I, I think my work can be a little prickly and I think I'm I'm often I I'm very aware that that my work can be disorienting, that I'm not interested like for me the difference between kitsch and art is everyone knows how to feel all the time in kitsch. Hmm. What makes something art and what lets it yield, right? That that you can kind of keep going back to it over and over again and it'll always yield something new is that you don't always know how to feel, that it's not processed, and that there are these other kind of shades of meaning, of desire, of identification. And so I, th- I think I really wanted that sense of me asking the reader to approach me tenderly mm. um, was kind of the... That was the emotional landscape that I wanted the, the reader to be entering, a kind of... Um, that we need to feel something tender for each other. And I'm, I'm so fascinated by the sort of like the self that exists in writing that the, the, the self that, and, and you know, Anne Carson's Eros the Bittersweet probably has like the most interesting and kind of like lucid description of the difference between 
a written self and an oral self, that when you transfer from an oral culture to a literate culture, the self becomes encounterable as a stranger in a way that's impossible otherwise. That when you read your old diaries and you're like, who was I in, for, in, in junior high school, right? That's not an experience you can have mm. if there isn't writing. And so the kind of self that gets constructed and, and there's a kind of alienation from oneself, a kind of, you know, and, and certainly like psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, uh, psycho, I can't, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you, you could leave that in or take that out. Uh, that psychoanalysis um, is often very concerned with this question, right? Of the self being alienated from the self and Lacan's mirror stage where you discover that you're um, unique or Freud's theory of melancholy and object loss. Um, that we're, we're kind of in this endless state of alienation from ourselves. Um, and so I, I really wanted to play with that, but I, I thought it kind of was a good entry for the book because it set up a lot of those themes and it kind of presented myself in a very specific way, but also kind of needing, it, it wasn't just I'm here to provide you with tenderness. It's that as a reader, I'm asking you to approach me with tenderness. I love that. Um, and you, you said so many things that I want to talk about, um, like a million, a million, a million. And this idea that like one function or one thing that writing does is turn the self into a stranger or allow you to in- encounter um, the self as a stranger. Um, I don't quite know why I feel compelled to go here, but can I talk about your body for a second? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think this feels related. I think it feels uh, related to this question of violence and tenderness. Um, so everyone listening is not here and cannot see Jason, but I would just for a moment like to describe Jason. Um, he's very handsome. Um, how tall are you? I'm 5'6". So you're 5'6", which is um, probably slightly... Like it's short. It's short for 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 men, yeah. um, and uh, you're very nicely dressed. You have beautiful glasses. Um, uh, you're wearing a blue button-down shirt of it's some. Barbados. Kind. Oh, okay. See, I know nothing about fashion, but you look very nice. Um, khaki pants, running sneakers, red socks, a lovely watch, um, and my. I mean, I know you, so it's not fair, but um, I, th- I believe that uh, as a cis woman walking down the street, um, if I did not know you, I would not be afraid of you. Um, I would perceive your performance of masculinity as non-threatening to me. Um, so one of the things that I would not immediately know about you, although if I looked for more than two seconds, I would start to be aware of it, is how strong you are. So um, bodybuilding is something that has been a part of your life since when? I think since about like 2015. I was doing karate before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just gotten my black belt. or I sort of I started doing the weight training right around the time that I was, I was doing my black belt. And I, I was a terrible fighter. I mean, like when people are like, oh my God, you have a black belt. I'm like, yeah, but I used my inhaler during my, uh, <laughs> dur- during my final, <laughs> final black belt test. Uh, like don't get, don't get too excited. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, my embodiment is is also a source of fascination to me, and and because of social media, um, all of our embodiments are public mm. in this very different way than they were. That like, I mean, I remember um, I had really bad acne um, when I was an adolescent. And I remember being quite relieved that I was a man mm. because I knew that women were valued so much more for their appearance. And so I kind of felt like, well, I can be ugly and people will still listen to me, hmm. that I can still, you know, I don't have to be embodied in a way that's so public. And and over time, I think that's really changed. And now, like, I'm definitely, there's there's, during quarantine, the huge part of my brain that had been dedicated to looking cute didn't get any use. And I was, I was so upset about it and I'm so glad. And thank you for, for saying something. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be back in, in the world. Um, I am really non-threatening. Mm. Um, it's kind of a bit of a superpower and it, it does have to do with whiteness. It does have to do with gayness, but it also has to do with the way that the world changed around me. Mm. So like when I was younger, like when I was, when I was, I was, people constantly made fun of the way that I talked. People constantly made fun of the way that I moved. I, I, I mean, I won't go into it, but I, I, my, my embodiment was extremely embarrassing. Mm. If I could have had no body, I, I would have. And, um, and when I taught, children for the first time, I actually bought a wardrobe. I, I did like the French uniform thing and mm. I just got a bunch of like polyester white button downs and khakis because I was so afraid that they were going to be focused on it. But then like, and, and that worked for me and I, and I kept doing it. But then like I had one job and this was in academia, um, but it, I was an administrator and I always wore, I just wore a white shirt and a tie. And Michael has excellent taste and he would pick out these amazing ties for me. And Michael would actually make sure that I didn't leave the house without a tie when I was teaching because hmm. he really wanted me to have the authority. And actually, I'll, I'll tell this story. And, I'll, and, and it's interesting because people over a certain age sort of like hear the story and we're like, good for you. And people under a certain age are like, I don't think you got the right lesson out of that story. <laughs> but when I was in college... I was, I was the liaison between the undergraduate and the faculty queer groups. Mm -hmm. So I got to spend a lot of time with the lesbian and gay faculty. So we were talking about clothing and one of the women, um, second wave feminist generation, um, was talking about the evolution of women's clothing in the workplace and particularly the ways in which women's embodiment and women's for lack of better word, fashion was really limiting and disempowering. And she and a number of the other women were just like, yeah, nothing that a woman can wear will ever have the power of a suit and tie. Mm. And I thought, oh, maybe I should wear ties. Like if there's this power, maybe I shouldn't be leaving it on the table. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I realized like if I did that, it kind of got me a certain level of authority um, and not, it, it, and that didn't kick in until I was in my twenties, like mm. in my, in my, in my late teens, if I wore a tie, I still looked like, you know, was, I've, I've always looked a little young. So I mean, I looked like I was on my way to my bar mitzvah. Um, 
but yeah, I don't, I, I mean, my embodiment is really interesting to me and it, and it's shifted a lot. And so when I started years and years ago, when I'd first started weight training, my trainer had taken a couple of pictures of me and I asked a friend who I, I had sort of, I was curious about thirst traps, mostly just because I wanted people to read my poems. I was like, well, if I post thirst traps, will people read my poems? What's a thirst trap? Oh, it's a, it's a picture of yourself that will make people want to have sex with you. Like if you post a, if you post a sexy picture of yourself, then you're, you're thirsty. Um, and a thirst trap, it, it can be good or bad, right? Uh-huh. I mean, like you can have an internet pylon where everyone accuses you of being desperate um, and horrible, or everyone can just be like, oh my God, I'm drooling over how, go- how gorgeous you are. And I kind of had this um, hypothesis that one, I would be more embarrassed than I was empowered. Um, two, that I would be seen as desperate rather than sexy. But um, I, I took it down fairly quickly after kind of confirming that I, I was more embarrassed. But but since then, I just, I don't know, like there's a there's a really, I do think you can be, in, for whatever reason, when we were younger, being sexy was a sign that you weren't serious. Hmm. And now I think it's really nice that there is a kind of comfort with sex and sexuality and being sexy. Um, and so there are a lot of younger poets who post either a lot of, you know, like pictures of themselves in various states of undress or of other people in various states of undress. And, and it's, it's, it's nice. Mm. I mean, actually, I, but I also don't think I can do that. Like there's, there's, I'm, I'm like Moses. I can't enter the promised land. Right? There's like, <laughs> there's a line past which I can't go. So do you think, uh, that the weight training is about being sexy, having authority, um, sort of like the, the tie, um, or what I see you doing in all parts of your life, which is working within a form or working the form, the, in this case, the form of your body, um, but also the form of masculinity, the form of like a relationship to sexiness or to, social media or to, you know, and it could be all of those Uh, things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, definitely one, definitely all of those things. Um, it feels really nice to be strong. Mm -hmm. Um, it feels really different when you're, I mean, when your muscles can carry your skeleton, things just feel a lot better. Hmm. It's, It's a nicer way to move through the world. And I'm really lucky because I teach, I don't have to be at a desk all day long. I can move around and walk. Um, in terms of the form, yes, I wanted to have the kind of body that I think is sexy. Mm. I wanted to be the object of desire that I desire. And it was interesting because I was, you, you had mentioned sort of the weirdness of heterosexuality and there's this Leo Bersani article that I've gone back to a million times called, is the rectum a grave? And one of the things that he talks about is that, and this is 1987, I think. This is, you know, this is a very different, I think masculinity is much more limited in the ways that he's conceiving of it and the way that the culture kind of understood it. Um, But he says that for gay men who are 
oppressed by masculinity, our attraction to masculinity is something that we really need to interrogate. That if you're starting with the premise that I'm hot for dudes and I'm hot for manly dudes, but manliness is precisely the category that you've been excluded from by homosexuality, you need to be very conscious of the fact that there's a really significant risk that your attraction is reinforcing your oppression. Mm. And I think that if you think about the ways that masculinity has shifted um, and the ways that gayness has shifted, it's very much in response to that ethical demand. Because, I mean, one of the things about, like, like if you think about, like, a, a Dworkin-McKinnon approach, right? Like, we can't have sex until we reinvent it in a way that it's non-oppressive. Well, you think you'll get there? I mean, like, like I'm not, I don't want to wait. Um, I'm not going <laughs> to give up, you know, Saturday night at the disco. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if I'm the one who's suffering from my own desires. Like, you know, I, I, I feel a little infantilized if I'm told, like, I can't do it until it's been reinvented in such a way that we can all, like, you know, kind of give it its approval. Um, and so, yeah, with, with masculinity and manliness, I'd like to think that it's, it's just a really big tent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm aware that my sexuality and desire. I also think that libido is a giant sponge for everything terrible. Hmm. Um, everything traumatic goes right to your libido. Like everything awful and bad, like goes straight to your libido. And that's not something that you, you have control over what you do. Mm-hmm. Wait, you, what do you mean it goes straight to your libido? Like it increases your libido or it No, ju- it, it shapes what you're attracted to. Ah, it okay. shapes what you want to do. It uh-huh. shapes what you find sexy. It shapes um Well, this is it- why I asked you, because I was like, oh, Jason will know. <laughs> I mean <laughs> we should yeah. I was like, is my heterosexuality internalized misogyny? Like is is my attraction is my physical attraction to men it some kind of like hatred of my own body or or my own femininity which is like a weird kind of version of the this notion of attraction reinforcing your impression uh, op- oppression um I, I and I don't know. It just it just seems it seems on some level very strange to be attracted to the body that isn't like your own in the in this way. Although I it's obviously much more complicated and I'm you know, because you're talking about being attracted to the parts of masculinity that were not easily available to you. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a way of being attracted to the, the things that are unlike your own and this, the, you know, false binary of, you know, male, female, uh, you know, and yeah. that everything falls along those lines is very unhelpful um, in this regard. And I think the answer is you won't know unless you explore it. Mm. And the way to explore it... I, I do think it's it's individual, but 
I, if it gives you pleasure, I don't think you should reject it. If it gives you pleasure, I think that you kind of want to go to that site. And we often kind of have this idea with sexuality. It, it, again, it's like very binary. Um, and, and I think that one of the things that people really, I, I think the reason that sort of kink became so mainstream is because it was a space to explore sexuality with a lot of conversations, with boundaries, with limits, with safe words, with, you know, like when you're exploring the libido, there are a lot of ways to do it carefully. And there are a lot of ways to do it slowly and empathetically and reflectively, right? That, that like really kind of like include a lot of metacognition. Um, thinking about what it was that was exciting or wasn't exciting. But, you know, there are power dynamics everywhere and things can go quite wrong. And so, I, I mean, in, in terms of like your specific question, if men give you pleasure, then enjoy that. Um, it seems it, it seems to me like that wouldn't be something you would give up for the sake of giving up because maybe there's something bad about it somewhere else. But if men give you pleasure, you can also kind of ask yourself, you know, in a sort of iterative process, what was the pleasure? Um, do I want to do that again? Um, do I want to do it again in that way? Is there a way that I would be interested in kind of trying it? And and I mean, with, with, I, I mean, I think that now there's sort of the, I mean, I talked about this a little bit in my manifesto and nothingism, the sort of like the difference between like the Frank O'Hara personism moment of like, go to the movies and maybe something erotic will happen and it'll be fun and exciting. And now, you know, you can get on Tinder or um, Grindr or, you know, whatever it is and kind of have a very specific set of things that you want to do and look for other people who have that very specific same set of desires. But I'm I'm not sure you can sort of skip the aleatory, the accidental, the serendipitous, the um, the spark, and like I mean, and a, and a lot of what I think sort of happens in libidinous pleasure is that the unexpected is often wonderful. Um, it can be terrible. So I I, I but I, I think that like we sort of. A lot, a lot of what happens in some of those spaces where, you know, everything has been so clearly, you know, I only want this and you only want that. And, and, these, and this is not new. I mean, the hanky codes, although I, the hanky codes were real, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of hankies where I'm like, you can't distinguish between Robin's Egg Blue and Teal <laughs> in a dark bar at like three in the morning. I'm sorry, you can't. There's no one who's like, is that Robin's Egg Blue or Teal? Like, no. Um, like, I just, I just don't believe that. But I, I, do, I do think there's a way in which there might be something in those spaces that gets lost that, that people don't know how to get back. Mm -hmm. um, but, but again... Well, sort like, of like... I, I sort of like... Are you writing the poem or the essay to explain what you think or to discover what you think? Are you having sex with someone to enact the thing you know you like or to find out what you like or to sometimes find out what you don't like. Um, but, 
before you answer that rhetorical question, um, how did we come, how did, how did I come to be so lucky as to have you as this genius friend that I can ask these crazy questions to, that I can text and say, Jason, I'm really struggling with, you know, writing my lecture book. Um, can I talk to you about Emily Dickinson, you know, late at night? And then we end up having like this long conversation about, you know, you know, who Emily was having sex with and misunderstandings, you know, or, or, you know, how did, how did we come to be, uh, in a kind of uh, celibate uh, poly triangle with Erica Meitner, um, how, like what? What? So I, 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 I was, I was actually, I thought you might ask that question, and I was trying to remember. And I know that the first time I met you was at the Ear Inn, oh. and you were reading from. The Last Clear Narrative, because I remember talking to you about the Tilda Swinton on the cover, oh. and I was a huge Tilda Swinton fan from, like, Derek Jarman films. Like, at the time, no one knew who Tilda Swinton was. She was, like, this weird, you know, indie actress who periodically participated in people's art projects. And I was like, how did you do that? And you were, like, explaining to me um, the your correspondence with the Serpentine Gallery mm-hmm. to get the picture. And I just thought you were really, really cool. But I also, it's funny that you are kind of hailing me as an intellectual because I think you had just gotten back from Iowa or... Probably, probably, yeah. And I I felt really intimidated by the Iowa crowd um, because I was at NYU and we had this kind of like, we're the confessionals. We just talk directly about what happens to us. (laughs) And like everyone at Iowa like has this... um, you know, they've, they've been studying with Jory Graham and James Galvin and they understand all this philosophy of language and they're doing these things in their poems that like, we're just, we're just like, so on Tuesday, this happened to me. <laughs> and like, you know, the people from Iowa, like, you know, often this, this intellectual class. Um, so I remember I met you then, but we didn't become friends. Um, I mean, I, I talked to you and I, yeah. but I, I don't remember it lasting longer than that. And then I don't, no, like at some point we were just in each other's orbit and, and it's the same thing with Erica. Like, I don't know how, like I have a story that I tell where I think we were on a Jewish panel together at AWP and she'd brought Hamantasha in and I was just like, I want to be your best friend. Um, cause I didn't grow up. I mean, I'm a military brat. I grew up until I went to college there was never more than one other Jewish family in my school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up explaining Judaism. Um, I grew up a model minority. Um, I needed to behave in ways that the rest of the world could judge. I, I was about to say Goyim, but uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was supposed to behave in a way that, because I, I, and I was raised with an awareness that non-Jews were making judgments about Jews based on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess everyone thinks that all Jews are gay, <laughs> but I aren't but they? I, 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 well, actually, that's that's the nature of anti-Semitism. Um, the nature of anti-Semitism prior to the founding of Israel is that Jew, Jewish men are feminine and Jewish women are masculine. And if you look at Anne Pellegrino, um, she has this wonderful book that I'm forgetting the name of, but she makes this argument that Freud focuses on gender difference because he's trying. The, the central axis of difference in the life of Freud is Jew, non-Jew. And he's making it man, woman in order to displace 
the anti-Semitism of his culture. And like, like, cause if you read Dora, if you read all these case studies, you would never know that all these people are Jewish, right? Like all of these people are Jewish. Um, and it just doesn't, it's just never said. Um, so I, I was, you know, I was just always explaining Judaism, like, you know, in front of every elementary school class, I was always explaining that Hanukkah is not the Jewish Christmas. And, um, and I didn't really fit in at like, like I was in a lot of Jewish spaces. Like I could go to Shabbatones and, you know, I'd go to like NCSY and I, you know, my parents sent me to Hebrew school and I was bar mitzvah and all that kind of stuff. But I, I never fit in. Um, I, I just felt like I never really made sense in either place. And then I just kind of clicked with Erica, I was like, oh, right. Like this is, here's all of the identities I want and have often felt alienated from in one person. Um, and we really like each other. And then I feel like that sort of, you were in the penumbra of that flame. Mm. And then we are now just kind of there together. So I think that's what happened. Well, I, I think there's one other part that, that I just want to mention. And then we're going to definitely move on to the second section of your book oh. with the wolves, um, which is related to this. But I, I, I can't point to a specific memory uh, or, or in time. But I, you know, because it's sort of just like there's always been Jason in my life. Which is not true, um, and I and I and I think one of the things that um, you maybe I made this up. You seemed really interested in birth. Oh yes, in women's bodies, um, not you know sexually, but in the birth process. In my writing about home birth, um, in my work with Ariel, um, and I was kind of like who is this gay guy who's like really genuinely informed and interested sort of like in a way that I hadn't really seen from other male poets, gay or straight. Um, and uh, so I, I, I did not know you well when I, when I reviewed home birth, that's true. Yeah. And I loved home birth. Like I was, I mean, Ariel yeah. and I both were like, why is he even reviewing this? Like, um, do you remember like why? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because my mother had five miscarriages and nearly died over and mm-hmm. over again because I, my mother very much wanted to have a lot of children and she really wanted more than three and she loved being a mother. And I felt very protective of her and I felt very scared for her. And I knew she stopped trying to get pregnant because a doctor told her she would die. Mm. Um, And she, and I, I remember like, And so I am, whenever anyone tells me they're pregnant, it is, I, I know I can't. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like talking about marriage, right? Like, like I, when someone says they're getting married, you can't be like, uh, (laughs) right? Like, like you have to, you have to say, great. And, and so I always had that same feeling about pregnancy. Like I, Mm. I want to tell, like, I, I had this very visceral reaction that every time someone is pregnant, I fear they're in danger. Mm Mm-hmm because of what happened. And, and I know that it's, it's wrong to project things onto other people. And I know, and so, but home birth, you know, makes this very strong argument that birth is a natural process 
and that a woman's body is inherently prepared for it. Oh, and I should mention that my own birth was difficult. I should mention that I was, I don't know what the name for it is, but I was, um, I was positioned in the womb in such a way that the doctors thought the placenta would come out first and I would drown and kill both of us. Mm. Um, and even the way I said that, that I would kill both of right. us. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 it tells you, tells you how I heard the story. Um, so even, even my own birth, even the story of my entering the world is, is this like dangerous, risky, terrifying thing that miraculously went okay and could have gone terribly wrong. And so, so reading home birth was, was a really beautiful argument that it was, it was the first time I had encountered a voice, um, treating pregnancy and birth as not just natural, um, but I don't, I don't even know how to say it, but, but good, mm-hmm. that it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it didn't, and it's not that it, it, it ignores the risks and it's not that it, you know, and, and Ariel's stillbirth is, is yeah. so painful and tragic. Um, but it, it gave me a sense of safety mm-hmm. about something that had been a kind of lifelong terror. Um, you know, I, I, and would you be willing to read your Stardust poem? Yeah. That would be so great. And this is a new, newish, unpublished poem. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard you uh, read this poem on Facebook. Um, you were doing a, a kind of panel with Ellen Bass. Remind me the name of the moderator. Just uh, Douglas Manuel. Thank you, Douglas Manuel. About yeah. queer poems and form, or queer yeah. poets and form, or it was, queer. It was sort of like all of that. It was like queers and form. Queers and form. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Stardust. And sometimes it has a Joni Mitchell epigraph, and sometimes it doesn't. I haven't decided yet. But um, we're we're billion year old carbon. We are stardust. We are billion year old carbon. Uh, stardust. Okay. Fine. So we're all made of stars. But being made of stars is like being descended from Noah or Adam. It's no big deal if you truly believe it. And what good is it to me that our sweat is made of stardust? That the unsanitary hand dryers at my school are made of stardust in the stardust bathrooms that the nursing department can't use because it turns out the star dryers are just blowing the star feces on our star hands all over the place. What good is it to me that the train to work is a star train or that my job is a star job or that the star human star body contains nine to 11 star quarts of star blood? When I was star seven, I was star woken star gently in the early morning because my star mother was losing her star blood. She collected the star blood and star cartons, which had held the star milk I drank on my star cereal to make measurement of the blood for the star doctors at the star hospital, where she and my star father went to complete the miscarriage of her star fetus while I went to the house of her star friend, quietly, sleepily, and I didn't even miss a star day of star school. Oh, stars. Will you listen when I tell you that I remember this? Stars, it happened five times because my star mother wanted more star life. She wanted to be a mother more times than she succeeded, and she only stopped so she wouldn't die, which was a relief, because I wanted her not to die. 
And I think it made my mother sad that I didn't want to make more lives as much as she had. And I think that's what she meant when she made me promise over and over again that I wouldn't ever hurt myself, even though I had never shown any inclination towards self-harm or suicide. And yet she brought it up over and over as though she knew something I didn't about myself. And even though I thought I knew something about her and her blood and the empty milk cartons we kept on hand for the next time she had to keep track of the blood she was losing, maybe I was wrong. 30 years later, when all those fears of her bleeding to death seemed trapped in some amber of memory, she died because her star lungs were too wet to carry the star oxygen to her star blood. I'm so sorry, star mother. I'm so sorry, star corpse. Be at peace for now in the star ground as I carry forward this star life so star wasted on star me, the life you star wanted to make so star badly, this star life that you star wanted enough to risk death for. And here I am with no star children of my own waiting to star crawl into the star earth saying, I'm sorry, so sorry. Thank you for this life, star mother. So sorry, so sorry. I just don't want it. So sorry, so sorry. I just want it to be over. So sorry. I love that poem. Um, and I know that uh, there's a very interesting conversation to be had, and maybe we can have both um, about um, the formal decisions of that poem. Um, but I want to skip to a content question. Um, This is related, I think, um, to the second section of your book about wolves, um, because I think that part of the wolves is about heritage, is about where we come from, the nature uh, of what we are. Um, You asked Kiki Petrozzini a question Uh um, on some other thing I was listening to. Petrosino, sorry. Sorry, thank you. Kiki Petrosino. Thank you. Yeah, Um, I love Kiki. Because that would be very embarrassing. Um, uh, You asked her... um, do you think that that not having children, biological children, um, changes your relationship to your own heritage or your interest in heritage or your your connection to your heritage? And I was waiting for her to ask you that same question, but that didn't happen. You went off in another really interesting yeah. direction. And, and so here is this poem that among many other like fascinating things, you know, brings up this, 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 uh, compulsion maybe that some people have to reproduce biologically or to have children, raise children through adoption, through, you know, many other ways. Um, and I think for, for, for some people that is like, that gives their life meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that this is a preoccupation in hold me tight. You know, what gives 
life, what gives a person, what gives the speaker meaning. Um, this comes up again very strongly in the last section, which is also last right. things. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Like you don't have children. Yeah. And I, and I thought I was going to, mm-hmm. um, and something happened, um, in my family that I, I don't want to talk about cause it, it, um, but it turned off the desire. Hmm. Um, I had very much, I had really thought like in 2004, I was going to come back to New York and, uh, Michael and I would start adoption procedures and, um, and I'm, I'm not, again, like, I mean, there's this thing, you can only be hurt in the life that you lived, right? Like a lot of us have kind of like these hypothetical desires and like, oh, if I'd done this or I'd done that. But the, the truth is um, all of the suffering that you experience is only in the life that you actually live. Um, and so I know, I, I don't regret not having children. I'm not sorry that I didn't have children. Um, but I am very aware that I didn't. And, and I had a lot of mentors. I had a lot of, a lot of heterosexual mentors, um, who did not have children and who kind of gave me, um, an understanding of what, what it could be like to have a life without kids. Um, and I have nephews. I, I do have young people in my life. Um, but it, I was, I was surprised that, and I, I feel like this turn happened about, about eight or eight years or so ago that, that when I was, when I was younger, um, queer spaces sort of assumed that your family was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, there was kind of an assumption that like, oh yeah, families are terrible, right? This is a really oppressive structure, you know, like dads are bad, um, you know, Judith, Judith Lewis Herman kind of, you know, like, oh yeah, the nuclear family is terrible. And like sort of the goal is to make, you know, sort of families of choice was sort of like the big, big term. And I, I actually always found it really fascinating how much people want to recreate families. Um, I mean, even like at Breadloaf one year, you know, like Ellen Bryant Voigt was saying how like no one ever adopts her as her as their breadloaf parents. So Carl Phillips is my breadloaf mom and Ellen Bryant Voigt is my breadloaf dad. Hmm. Like but but like it's it's such a kind of familiar structure that that for a long time I felt like there was a lot of discussion. Like there was sort of a, just an just an assumption this was bad, that this was just an oppressive structure, but we don't really have an alternative and we're sort of working on making them. And then, you know, like everything has sort of become ancestry like people are really really focused on ancestors and really focused on heritage and really focused on and in fact I mean I'm not biologically related to any of my grandparents Hmm. um I am I so so I I also have this very strange relationship to ancestry because um I just don't I don't think of my connections in terms of genetics. Um, I mean, in a weird way, I was sort of already in a queer family, right? If we want to use that terminology now, which would have made no sense in 1976, right? Um, but I, I don't know. So, I mean, I, I, I do think about it a lot and I, I find it really confusing because I just don't, 
I, I just like right now, I, I just feel very disoriented by the discourse around family. Mm. Um, and in fact, like I heard someone on the radio who was adopted and wrote a memoir and this person has gone back to using their birth name, re-entered their birth family. And I, I was, I was listening to the radio and I was just in a state of shock. I was like that, what, like, it, it just, I, like, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it would be like, you know, I just, I have no language for it. Mm. Um, and so when I get to some language for it, like I'll <laughs> let you know how I feel. Um, but anyway, but yeah, so so in terms of like a lot of the discourse now, I I find it very, um, I sometimes I feel left out. Like mm. sometimes I'm like, oh, I can't join this conversation because like I don't really have, I mean, obviously I have blood relations. I mean, obviously like, you know, I am descended from someone. But, but because I'm not in this kind of chain of ancestry, um, and, I've, I mean, and I've written about this, this a number of times in a number of ways, and, and I, I think usually obliquely. Mm-hmm. I, I think I don't usually address it directly um, because I don't really have, I don't really know what it means. I don't, but, but I do know that I have this kind of, sense of dislocation or disorientation or just I, I often feel like when 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 people are discussing sort of what heritage means or what descendant what it means to be a descendant of someone and then to have your own descendants um I I'm often very aware that I'm I'm sort of not I just don't think about things the same way that other people do. Um, well, okay. So can you talk a little bit, I, I'm not wrong that the book of wolves, which is the title of the yeah. second section of hold me tight is, uh, very much concerned with questions of heritage yes. and yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, very, the most important question, um, am I the RZ of yes. storyteller. Oh, thank oh, God. I, you knew. Yeah, I, I was RC. like, I was like, Oh, yeah, thank God. That's, that's this, about, that's about your mom. This, this poem <laughs> is, is, is for me. Um, uh, but talk, talk a little bit about the book of wolves. Um, if there's one of the poems that you want to read great, or if you just want to talk about like wh- what's, you know, it comes right after the poem that, yeah. uh, that, you know, uh, I was the bomb, hold me tight, you know, the anger poem. And then we go to the book of wolves. What's going on there? The wolves were a way to have enough distance from something that basically the, the, the inciting incidents of anger, the, the thing that happened that, that sort of sparked anger, I could only write about it obliquely. And so the wolves were away into it. Mm. Um, and the wolves shift. The wolves are not stable. Um, and I was attracted to the idea of the wolf as an obvious predator and, you know, kind of an obvious monster and an obvious evil. And and sort of, I was particularly, I was teaching Little Red Riding Hood at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was teaching children's literature. So I was, you know, teaching like 17 different versions of Little Red Riding Hood. And, um, and my students were often very kind of like upset 
by the earliest versions that kind of blame Little Red Riding Hood for basically being a slut. Like, like <laughs> of course you got to eat and she's a slut. Yep. Um, and they were like, how dare they? And I was like, well, like, um, yes, like, I'm glad you're having this reaction, but also, like, let this give you some perspective on the 1600s. Um, and they just kind of kept shifting and moving around. And I was also very aware that one of the very few things that unites the left and the right discourse is a very strong sense of victimizers and victims. Mm. And that our discourse, um, and I'm not the only person writing about wolves. I mean, a lot of people are noticing this, right? I mean, there are wolves all over the place. Um, and so the, the poems kind of gave me a free space to think about how to reimagine predators mm. in in ways that sometimes they're not predators at all, that they've been figured as predators and they're not. And other times, you know, just when everyone's like, oh, okay, they're great. No, they're <laughs> they're still terrible. Can I read can I read um I'm actually can I read The answer is yes. Thank you. <laughs> um I wanted to read the parable of the wolves too. Great. Um, wolf loves fox, which wolves don't do. Wolf loves fox, which makes all the other wolves hate him. All the wolves are named wolf, which usually works fine. But now that wolf loves fox, they need a name to drive him from them. They call him fox-loving wolf, and the wolves drive him from the forest with fox. And fox and fox-loving wolf live in a field which suits fox just fine. At the end of their lives, fox reveals that he was really a wolf. Fox-loving wolf starts to cry and says, why would you do that to me? I gave up everything for you, and I didn't have to? Fox, but really wolf, says it was the only way I could be sure of you. I had to know you would give everything up for me. Um, and I don't know how, I mean, the writing process is, is intuitive. So like there's, there's a way in which like sometimes, you know, after it's finished, you kind of get a, a sort of better perspective on it. But uh, for me, it was really about the cruelties that are often embedded in love, mm. that there's a certain kind of, I mean, I, I think that the poem is, is sort of like surprising and shocking and weird and disturbing and upsetting, but funny. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really know, but, but that sense of identity, right. That it's, it's constantly shifting, that there's all this disguising going on and that everyone sort of like every throughout the poem, everyone's so sure they know what's happening and they're wrong. <laughs> right. Okay. So wait, let, let I want to stay with this for just a second. Yeah. So you talk about like that, you know, for a long time, all of your poems were about AIDS and the Holocaust. They were read as being about the AIDS. Okay. So no matter what I did. Right. That's how it was read. And, and 
uh, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but that part of the reason why they were always read that way was because you were to some extent hiding in the poems and you were encoding, you know, certain things in the poems. You also, though, just described yourself as like, you know, coming out of NYU and being like, you know, just saying the thing and being a confessional poet as opposed to those like elliptical Iowa <laughs> people of whom I was not really one. Um, I mean, I went there, but I didn't, it didn't you're, you're like take, elliptical. it yeah. didn't take. <laughs> and I was, you know, uh, the odd man out. Um, but so I'm interested in this, like in, 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 I'm interested in the wolves. I'm interested in, you know, the wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm interested in the skies I'm interested in the what's the what is the word is there a word for like the opposite of anthropomorphizing like animalizing of the human I don't know okay so like must, but I mean I mean the only the only examples of it that we have are always terrible right I mean, it's always like they only like you only get compared to an animal when someone's about to kill you right yeah. so so here are these wolves and I and they shift they're not it's not um it's not like a um parable or something where it's like everything always mean like the wolf always means this and the yeah. you know um and so I guess what I'm really asking is a sort of meta question about your relationship to poetry as a way of hiding, revealing, confessing, disguising, you know, both as like the act of writing each poem and, and doing that, but also, yeah. I guess, to the lineage of the confessional poets, the persona poets, right. the, the, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel more connected to people who are oblique. I mean, mm. I feel more connected to like Russell Edson, Wojtowicz and Borska. I don't feel, well, I don't feel that connected to Sylvia Plath, but also um, sh there's nothing confessional in Sylvia Plath. Mm -hmm. Like, I um, agree. There's like, <laughs> like, if you're trying to get autobiography out of a Sylvia Plath poem, it's not there. Yeah. And so I, I do feel very, Kafka, right? That Kafka is such an important writer for me. And my, that's why my Twitter handle is Kafka boy, which used to be all of my email addresses, but then, you know, like at a certain point you have to apply for jobs. <laughs> um, but Kafka for a number of reasons, one, because I felt like his stories presented the world in a way that I understood really intuitively that are much more interesting than Kafka's actual life. Like if you actually mm -hmm. like do, like if Kafka had been a memoirist, I don't think we'd still be reading, you know, like it wouldn't be, it just, it just, uh, he's able to get at the truth through those stories by presenting a world in which every time you think, you know, something you don't, and then you're punished for not having known it. Huh. And I, I love that. And I also, the other thing about Kafka is that, um, he was hysterically funny during his life. Um, like when he first read the metamorphosis, like people fell out of their chairs laughing. And so in terms of disclosure, I, I'm not a memoirist and I, because I can't be, hmm. um, I've tried, I, I tried writing a memoir once. Um, it was for Wayne Kestenbaum's mm -hmm. class and I wasn't there as I tried to write the memoir, all I wrote was what I thought people 
had seen me as doing and what the perspectives of the people around me were on what was happening to me. And it was a very strange experience. You know, like you think you're writing a memoir and then like, you know, however many pages, it was probably about 20 pages later, I'm not there. Like mm-hmm. what I thought my father thought, what I thought my mother thought, what I thought my brothers thought, like all of, like, and so poetry, so one, I don't trust, I trust prose more now than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, I had this very strong sense that the sentence itself left something out. Mm. That every single sentence had a kind of boundary outside of it that was untrue. And and it made it hard to write papers. Um, I would often, you know, when I was learning the five paragraph essay in my K through 12, um, I often found myself making arguments I didn't agree with because the evidence was easier to marshal. And so I was constantly lying, not because... I wanted to lie, but because I didn't know how to look at a body of evidence and resist it. I didn't know how to look at a body of evidence and and kind of turn it around until I got to something that was surprising. But a poem let me do that. And a poem was a place where I could calibrate the language so that the emotional landscape was true, even if there was nothing factual there. And it also gave me a way to, well, I, I will say my experience of writing about other people has been that other than little moments like where you're RZ and, and you know, you know um, where you are in that poem, mm-hmm. very few people like being a minor character in someone else's story. That, that the vast majority of people, upon encountering themselves in any kind of poem, feel decentered, um, in part because they are, right? I mean, like, if, if someone else is, is I, I, and I still make this mistake, like, I mean, I, I feel so terrible that the person who, the person who told me that I was okay when I wasn't okay, I told her, I was like, oh yeah, you're the one who said that. And then I was like, why did I do that? Because like, I sort of, you know, I I take this one piece out of this much longer conversation and this person is such a wonderful support and someone who I love so deeply and dearly. And there's this one thing that got said in the conversation that makes her look like a jerk in this poem. Um, And I was like, why? Like, ugh, I'm such a monster. Like I should not have said that. Um, And so I, I don't, I also, I, the thing about memoir, and I, and I love your memoir, and one of the things I love about your memoir that, like, just blew me away is, is that your mother responds, mm-hmm. right? There's this whole section where you give your mother space to speak back, and one of the reasons that I'm, I'm often quite suspicious of memoir is, I mean, if, in, in literary theory, like, a sort of commonplace is that no one can hear a story they don't already know. Mm. And, and sort of the, the classic example is, and the band played on, right, that Randy Schultz's History of AIDS presents Gaetan Dugas as this villain, and it's just not true. Everything about Gaetan Dugas in that history is just not true, but it made it a marketable book. It became a bestseller because, oh, gay villain who won't stop fucking to save other people's lives. That's a story that we know. Um, and Douglas Crimp even has, there's a, there's a wonderful essay by Douglas Crimp 
where he talks about, I think it was Randy Schultz is on a radio show and someone, and he's telling a story about, you know, like someone had asked a question about, you know, well, what if the waiter, and this is like 1982, like, well, what if the waiter has AIDS and he jerks off in my salad dressing and I eat the salad, will I get AIDS? And, you know, he told this to a gay audience and everyone laughed. They're like, you know, like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but he was he was then talking to a straight audience. And when he told the story, like, no one laughed. And then someone was like, but, but will I? Wow. And it was like, do you really think that, like, waiters have time to jack off in your salad? Right. And so... So there's this way in which I, I'm, I and I, I've gotten in trouble for this. I, I lost a friend once um, for for saying this. That like I often am highly suspicious of memoir. And like when something happens, like James Frey, mm-hmm. um, when a million little pieces turned out not to be true, and there was sort of like the punishment tour, right? The scolding, and I was like he told you the story you wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Like like I mean, we're punishing him to punish ourselves because we demanded that. And, and, you know, and there's like a Holocaust memoir that's faked every 20 minutes because we, we have the, I mean, David Shields called it reality hunger. And I, 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 am not a fan of, of his book by that name, but, um, I, I actually, I, I'm, I think there's so much more and I, and I don't hate all memoirs. I mean, there, there are lots of memoirs that I really love and I'll, I'll say, um, cause I've worked with students on memoirs. And the memoirs that I love are memoirs like Lucy Greeley's Autobiography of a Face, mm-hmm. where it's a meditation on what something means. So like that book is a meditation on what it means to be figured or disfigured. But she leaves out her twin sister, mm-hmm. um, who, who's her identical twin sister, who is not disfigured because she said, you know, if, if people had known there was a twin sister, they would have wanted to put them side by side. Mm-hmm. And then be like, oh, here's what you would have looked like if you hadn't been disfigured. And that would have defeated the entire meditation, right? But even there, like, right, like what you want or what the expectation is or what we're what we're ready to hear is often so different from what's true. Um, and so in poetry, it felt like the place where I could say what I thought was true. And I, I only expected to say it to a very small audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I only expected to sort of say it to really specialists who, I mean, at the time, like in the nineties, like really like uh, by and large, the only people who are reading poets are other poets. I mean, now yeah. poetry is very popular. Um, now like oh, on morning edition, they talked to a, a woman about her book of poems. So it was like, you know, a new nonfiction book. I was like, it was like popular science. I was like, this is wonderful. Wow. I know we can get on morning edition now. Like, people <laughs> will talk to us about our poems. And I, and I think, I think there's, I think it's easier to enter conversations. I think that, that like, like your podcast, mm-hmm. that this brings people in, in a way that was hermetically sealed. And I think that, um, it, it's good and it's bad. I mean, there was, there was a protection to being hermetically sealed. Yeah. I mean, there's a protection to no one reading poems unless they were going to go look at the journal, which was, you know, being sold in seven bookstores <laughs> and, you know, maybe it was assigned to your class, by your teacher, there was a safety there, but I, I feel like I've, I've gotten away from the question, but, but in terms of disclosure, um, and actually this is something about sort of the, the larger discourse is that I do feel entitled to not say things as a form of self-protection. 
mm-hmm. I feel absolutely entitled to not reveal something that I don't feel ready to reveal or that I think will expose me to harm. Yeah. And maybe actually we could skip uh, to the last section Uh (laughs) of your book because I think this is related. So the last section of the book is called The Book of Lasts and sort of has this interesting sort of callback to the Book of Wolves. Um, and I'd love to hear you just sort of talk about what what this means. And, and the connection that I'm thinking about, your poems were received as being about AIDS and the Holocaust, both of which were experiences that you did and didn't live through. Right. Um, both of which are, you know, really problematic in terms of uh, memoir, um, both of which are related to this this element that comes up or this theme that comes up in your book about, like, you not being able to hear the story that you don't already know or the violence of stories or the audience's kind of, like, appetite for certain kinds of violence or violent stories or storytelling and sort of the violence of disclosure, um, but also uh, poetry as the place where you get to talk about things that you don't get to talk about outside of poetry and you get to talk in ways that are um, like include the things that the sentence may have left out. Um, you get to be embodied. You get to be like, you know, I, I was thinking about, um, what is it called? A uh, thirst trap. <clears throat> Obviously we're both, we ha- have you ever written a poem called thirst trap? No, <clears throat> we have to, I, both of us. Well, I was trying to write. And one of the things when, so apparently the way that you sell books of poetry. Oh, tell me. Is. <laughs> Publish them during a pandemic. Yes, that's that's a very important part. <laughs> Make sure that you're unable to tour and that you can only be you can only appear virtually. Um, but is is to publish apparently what I'm what I'm being told is to publish clickbait. And clickbait, clickbait right, that clickbait if you being can like- publish short, easily consumed nonfiction pieces. Um, that's what sell that's what sells books. And so I've been trying to write, um, and when I say it that way, it's like, you already hear my kind of like, like you can hear why I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is it? Um, which, which is really unfair because I, I mean, I, one, I read a lot of what I'm calling clickbait and two, like I have a lot of friends who've written it and I, and I keep reading it, trying to figure out like, how do I write the modern love column? Right. Like, how do I do that? Um, and it, it's, there, there's something resistant in me that is about me. It's not about the forum. It's not about short nonfiction. Um, it's, it's about me and I don't know quite what it is yet. And when I figured out then I won't have the block anymore. I, I was trying, but I, I, I bring this up because I was trying to write clickbait about my thirst trap. Oh, about, I was trying to write like a, a short essay about posting a thirst trap and you know, what it felt like and did I want to do it and did I not want to do it? And am I going to keep doing it? And like, you know, and is, is there a statute of limitations? Like, you know, if I'm, if I, is there a certain point past which one is no longer thirst trappable? And I, I don't know. I, I never got anywhere with it, but I, I should probably try it as a poem. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I write a poem, it'll make a lot more. I really want you to write a poem and I, I, I'm sure I'll regret this. I want everyone listening to write a poem with the following title and send it to us 
And I want the title to be Thirst Trap Clickbait. That's there, right. There's your assignment. Okay. Okay. All right. We should, we should have a contest. We should have like a prize. We do, oh my the God. Best, we totally um, should. Poem titled Thirst Trap Clickbait. Because it's kind of a nice like. It's great. Okay. All right. Book of Lasts. So what are these lasts and what is the book of lasts? Um, I mean, I wrote those poems, I think, I think starting in 2010. I think I started writing the poems then. And I had this very strong sense that something was ending and something was coming to take its place. And I wasn't sure if it was me, if I was aging, if I was just getting a different perspective because, you know, something as simple as, you know, having this giant CD collection because everyone did and not needing that anymore because everything's streaming. Um, if it was just me or if it was something larger. And I think it was something larger. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, if I want to get intellectual, I think we're at the end of modernism. Mm. Um, I think that all of the kind of intellectual ideas put in place sort of between 1890 and 1920, but even going further back, the kind of subjectivity sort of instantiated in Europe between 1200 and 1600. I just, I think it's coming to an end. And I think that those of us who were raised kind of explicitly and implicitly to think in modernist ways need to rethink a lot of things and also need to think about what's worth saving and what's not, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the pieces that, like, I've, I've been reading the new criticism a lot, like, um, and they're such jerks. Like, they're so awful. Um, they can't say anything without being like, well, I can't believe I have to say this again, and I'm sure that you're too stupid to understand it this time, but... <laughs> um, but they have some really good ideas. Like they actually, I mean, I'm, I'm still really invested in kind of new criticism and close reading because I think that it's the foundation that everything else rests on. I don't think you can have postmodernism without close reading. I don't think you can have Derrida um, without close reading. But on the other hand, I think that we've been sort of living in the wake of, and I really think something is, is shifting. And, and I kind of wrote about this in um, an essay that I wrote about sonnets and the way that sonnets turn. And, you know, kind of making the argument that if the volta or the turn in the sonnet is the divided self that arrives in, you know, that, that, that marks the transition from a medieval subjectivity to a modernist subjectivity. If you look at sonnets now, the way that they move like helixes, where it's not this kind of fold, it's not a it's not a fold, it's a twist. Mm. And this is the index of a new way of understanding ourselves. And of course we can't I mean, I'm I did what I, I you know, I at best I was holding a lantern to say like to someone else, come figure out what this means. <laughs> okay, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Because I, I wanna hear I, I wanna hear this, but I know that I that there are people listening who when they hear Derrida, they just like there's like a their oh. brain just stops working for one second. And so just to come back for a second, because, I mean, you just said something like pretty huge, like, oh, you know, maybe we're at the end of modernism. Yeah. So in in that um, configuration, postmodernism is part of modernism. Yes. 
And so we're, we're coming to the end of, we, we might be coming to the end of modernism, which is, which is different than postmodernism, which is different than post-postmodernism. I mean, like, when is Grey Wolf publishing your book of essays? <laughs> I don't, like, you're, you're like, oh, I wrote a le- an essay on the sonnet, and I wrote an essay on the line, and I wrote an essay on, you know, my manifesto on, you know, and, and I, I mean, I, you are an incredible poet, but, like, where are your, where's your book of essays? It's got to be coming. I'm working on it. Yeah, good, good, because because you are the literary critic and thinker and cultural critic that I most want to read. Where are we? Well, so I don't know that I'll have an answer for where are we, but I will have an answer for, so when I, when I say modernism, there's sort of a few different strands. Uh, There's, there's not sort of a, there is a singular modernism, but what we mean by modernism is so multifaceted. So the first thing is this kind of idea of what we used to call the Renaissance, and now we call the early modern period. Um, and, and people still call it the Renaissance. Like, I say it as though, of course, no one calls it the Renaissance now. But, <laughs> you know. um, and, and so the idea of the early modern period is that the movement from the, from the medieval period in which one is kind of unitary, and it's, it's very much like a sort of oral culture. It's very much this idea of um, a unitary self. Mm-hmm. And it's different from the, so if, if you, and this is a very Western um, trajectory, but if you, if you kind of like have the sort of the classical world, right, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, you have a unitary self, but nothing's really up to you because gods are doing stuff. So like if you read the Iliad when they go to visit Helen, um, no one's mad at Helen, right? Mm. Helen caused the Trojan War, but no, she didn't, right? A god put in her head to go with this guy. So no one's mad at Helen. It's not mm. her fault. She didn't do it. Um, then you get to medieval subjectivity, right? Which is, which is also unitary, but it's, it's sort of more a, a set of conflicts around like good and evil and, you know, witches and possession. And, um, and I'm sort of doing a bad job of explaining this, but like if you, the, the example I give to my students is every man. Like if you know the miracle play, every man, um, there, there's an allegorical self, but it's unitary. And um, when death comes to say, hey, every man come with me, um, and every man says, can I bring my friend wine? And wine is like, no, I can't go with you. And he's like, can I bring my friend money? And money's like, no, I can't go with you. And he can only bring his friend good deeds and bad deeds, right? Um, and then you get to the, the early modern period where you have the beginning of death psychology, right? Mm-hmm. I freeze and I burn. Um, I feel two things at once. Hamlet's soliloquies, where he's like, I should do this, but I should do that, but if I do this. And so the self becomes something to inquire into, right? The idea of a divided, so so this kind of idea of the onset of modern subjectivity is that there is a divided self that has depth and needs to be analyzed and inquired into and contains contradictions and multiplicities that are psychological. It's mm. not that the devil wants you to kill Claudius, but an angel would want you to save him. It's that all of this is happening inside of me. Right. And I can only explore it by being, by figuring out myself. Um, high modernism, um, I usually explain as kind of starting with, um, the insights of Darwin, Marx, Einstein, and Freud. 
And what these thinkers have in common, and again, between sort of roughly 1880 and to 1920, and obviously it's, it's, a, it's a broader period than that, but um, what these thinkers are saying, and there are many other thinkers, and Saussure is in here as well, um, the world is not organized in the way that it seems that it is. That um, you think that you're rich because you're virtuous and good, and you think they're poor because they're dirty and lazy, but actually there are these other hidden forces that are structuring the economy. You think that you, know, you want to have this kind of sex, or you have this kind of hysterical cough or limp or you know whatever for this reason but really this is what's going on right you actually want to because when you were very very small you wanted to kill your father and marry your mother and then you became afraid he would castrate you actually this is what's going on with you and darwin is saying like you think you're the king of the animals because god actually it turns out um and then einstein is like you know time is space right and their heads all explode um but what all of these thinkers have in common is that they're telling you that, or they're telling the, their, their audience that the world is not structured in the way that they believe it's structured mm. based on looking. But the only tool you have to figure out how it's really structured is also looking. And so you have this kind of rise of expertise in which you have expert lookers. Right, and and I'm I'm still invested in this, right? Like I still want expert lookers, but this this is really a critical change in sort of how people understand the world. And I also, you know, Arthur Danto, um, his chronology of modernism and art, which is really important to me, is that um, the modern the modernism trajectory of art is the purification of medium. What can a painting do that nothing else can do? What can a sculpture do that nothing else can do? What can a poem do that nothing else can do? And, and he argues that this kind of dead ends into postmodernism. And his argument about postmodernism, or, or art in postmodernism, which I think is really beautiful, is that we can now have a definition of art in postmodernism, which is anything can be art, but it must meet two conditions. And one is that it has to be about something, and the second is that it has to embody that something. Right. Which, is, which is a really right like and I, I come back to this all the time right that like for something to be art it has to embody the thing that it's about um and so so when i talk about modernism like these are kind of the um this is kind of the trajectory of analysis and thinking and understanding of the self that i i think is shifting and i don't know how i just know it has something to do with the change in media that for that starting from the invention of film or, or for photographs in what, like the 1830s or the beginning of photography? Yeah, yeah. From, from roughly the 1830s to kind of the late 1990s, um, most of the media that were being developed, um, one are visual and audio, and they're working to record images and they're working to record sounds and they are mass media that they're slowly getting larger and larger. They're, they're getting larger and larger audiences that you are losing, you know, kind of the get together where everyone sings and you're getting, you know, first you get the sheet music and then you get the vinyl record and then you have the radio. 
Um, and the internet broke that, right? So now we have, we've shattered for, for 150 odd years, we were actually reaching larger and larger audiences. And we were recording sounds and images and then that broke. And now we have smaller and smaller audiences that are increasingly devoted. Um, and I was initially quite optimistic about the internet because it was in language. When the internet was primarily text-based, yeah. I was like, oh, reading's good, <laughs> right? Like, oh, okay. Um, but as the things that we read get shorter and shorter, and as there was more and more video and sound, I, the, the way, it, we, we still do not have the distance to see how it's changing who we are and how we understand ourselves. I mean, we're starting to see it. I mean, I, I often feel generational difference. Like I was talking to a friend and I asked them if they liked a particular television show and they said, no, that, that, that fandom is toxic. Huh. And right. And like, I was just, I, I, I couldn't grok this. I was like, wait, you wouldn't <laughs> watch something because the other people who like it are bad. Um, but then like, I, I, I was having dinner with a friend and what well, was a Seder and, mm -hmm. um, her daughter I think is 12. And when I told that story, she was like, Oh, of course. And in fact, now my friend just told me that, um, in response to JK Rowling's transphobia, um, there is a huge swath of Harry Potter fandom that treats Daniel Radcliffe as the author. Whoa. That they just erase JK Rowling and they only talk about Daniel Radcliffe as the author of the Harry, because they still love the Harry Potter books. Um, JK Rowling is bad and, and disappeared. And since Daniel Radcliffe stood up for trans people, they've, they've made Daniel Radcliffe the author. Um, and right, I mean, this like this is like an Orwellian dystopia if you're over like 30, if right. you're under like, I guess, I don't know, I don't want to say an age, but like this is a perfect response to a crisis. And so like that's kind of my sense that we, we're entering. So when I was writing this book of last, and so there's a lot of technology in it, there's mm -hmm. a lot of like, um, and and I think about the book a lot as a technology and, I, and how deeply, deeply invested I am in the book. And, you know, I always tell my students that the, the codex book, right? Sheets of paper attached to a single binding um, is a result, it's, it's technology that um, the city of Alexandria forbade the export of papyrus and in pargment, which became the word parchment, they figured out you could write on animal skins and fold them. Mm -hmm. And if you fold them, you can sew them to something and then you can cut them and flip them around. And that's how we get the codex book. Um, that, that all of this is technology and the book for millennia. And it, the book is still the best way to a, a paper book and it, and it can burn. They're hard to clean. Um, you can't get them wet. They're like gremlins. <laughs> um, you know, like, like the, I'm not suggesting the book doesn't have a lot of problems, but the book remains the most reliable way to keep a set of specific words in a, in a specific order. And like, I'm thrilled that hold me tight is in the New York public library ebook collection. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been reading a lot of, poetry books on, on, um, in the e-collection for the New York Public Library, um, particularly since I can't get to the physical, I haven't been able to get to a physical library in a year and a half. But 
there are there are really weird things happening with books. And I warn my students now that if they order, I mean, there, there's an article, it's always Orwell. There's an article in the New York Times about not bootlegged versions of Orwell, but kind of Baudelarized or bastardized versions. And so like there's one, I forget the name of the, I forget which Orwell book, but it's edited by Moira Propriate. Get it? Moira Propriate. <laughs> and it takes out the sex and the violence. And there's, like, there was, there was an incident where all copies of 1984 were erased from all Kindles in a copyright dispute. Um, and Orwell is particularly interesting, one, because Orwell is taught so much, but two, because Orwell is and is not in copyright depending on where in the world you are. Huh. So, uh, you know, I, I, I ordered a copy of, of Spring and All because I wanted to look at... I wanted to look at those experiments, uh, the William Carlos Williams experiments in trying to find the line between prose and poetry, which is very much a modernist experiment, right? Like I need to figure out where the dividing line is so I know which can do which. And the, the copy that I ordered was trash. It was, it was trash. I mean, like upside down punctuation marks. Um, I mean, it had clearly gone through a scanner and then been printed up and sent to me. And it's, I, I can't use it because, I mean, that book is so dependent on typography. So, oh so anyway, so the last poems, I think, because, and the first one is the last book. Um, and I was writing it just as kind of Kindles were coming out. But if you've lived through something, you know, it's like the best pop culture was always made when you were 12, <laughs> right? Like, like <laughs> And it is not that the best culture is when you were 12, but like you're so attached to what happened to you at that moment. And so I, I kind of wonder, like, you know, I'm so defensive of the book. And so what I did was I wrote this sort of weird elegy celebration of books. But will the people a generation or two or five or 10 after me have the same attachment? Or will they kind of be like, oh yeah, right, like Jason Schneider was really into books. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> I don't know what that was about. Okay, this is a very personal question. Um, for this moment, while we're sitting in this space, um, having this particular conversation, and I really don't mean to typecast you as like young Wayne. I'm sorry. <laughs> if only I could be young well, Wayne. Well, you do have a lot in common, including your very sizable muscular intellect and I my conversation with Wayne for a commonplace a lot of it kind of was preoccupied with our physical books mm -hmm. and what to do with them and how do you get rid of them and do you get rid of them and so now I'm at this new point in my life where I will be moving from this apartment um I think I'm going, I think I'm looking for a furnished sublet for three months. Um, I don't know if I want to stay in New York. Um, uh, I don't understand how much space I need in terms of like, I still have three children, but two of them are what some people would call adults, um, but they still are my children and are not independent. Um, and I don't know how much space I can afford. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I, I also have been living for uh, for a year and a half in a place in Maine, which was like, you know, designed and set up to be a rental. So it doesn't have any of my 
it doesn't have any photographs. It doesn't have any art. It doesn't have any books. I mean, it has some, you know, that have accrued. And I've really liked, that has felt clean and good to me to be in a space that has no books. Mm -hmm. And yet sitting here, you know, these are my poetry books. We're we're looking at built-in bookshelves full of poetry. And And poetry collections are nice because they're so slender. They're so slender, but it it continues over here. Mm -hmm. And I have a fantasy of like donating all of these poetry volumes, many of which you can't get anymore, to like a library, particularly a library, a small library, like maybe the Scarborough Main Public Library. That so like I could go visit my books there. Mm-hmm. But then, and I don't, you know, you probably wouldn't have noticed, um, but like there are red post-it notes I on. Not. Well, because they're not on the poetry books, but uh-huh. um, uh, like on the the novels when you come in and in the books in the bedroom. Um, and those are the shelves which contain books that Josh wants. Okay. And so my job in the next, you know, two weeks is to look at those books and decide if there are any of those books that I don't want to you know, let him have. And, and, and just overall this question of like, as I move forward into something we don't have a name for, possibly <laughs> post book, a, a, you know, post marriage, um, post in some ways, post family in other ways, absolutely not. What should I do with my books, Jason? That's that's not an easy question. It's a really hard question. Um, my friend Jennifer L. Knox, um, I was at her apartment before she left Brooklyn, and I marveled at how small her book collection was. Like, I was like, how? How did you do that? And she was like, oh, once I realized I wasn't like going to be... Uh, once, once I sort of didn't have a particular idea of myself as kind of... I don't, I don't want to say as a teacher, because I'm trying to remember exactly what she said. And I'm going to get it wrong. But basically she said, I only have to have the poetry books I love. Mm. I know David Trinidad has a rule, which is only friends and masters, that when you look through the books, is this your friend or is this a master? Um, so Jen has the, you know, like only what I love. Um, for me, and I'm going to I'm gonna have to do this too, it's a combination of love and consultation. Mm. Um, I will never give up my Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetics. One of the historians think that we're actually not leaving very much of a record that like we think everything is totally documented. Like, you know, if if you want to know anything about anyone, you can like look at their Facebook page. You can like scroll through their Instagram. But there's really no um, there's no mechanism to preserve it. And so like Dennis Cooper who had this, um, I think it was a Blogspot blog. I think it was like a, a, I think it was Blogspot. Um, And he had, you know, years and years of writing Mm -hmm. on there and they erased it by accident Mm -hmm. and it's gone. Yeah. And everyone sort of has this idea of like, oh, once it's on the internet, it's there forever. And it's like, well, only if you don't want it to be. (laughs) Like (laughs) like if you actually wanted to retrieve it, um, it very may well have been written over. And so I think that, like, for me, the answer is, like, do I need to consult it Mm -hmm. um, or do I love it? 
Right. So like I also have an enormous number of birth books. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not having more children. Um, I like having those books so that I can give them to somebody who's mm-hmm. pregnant as opposed to like all the horrible books that are out there. But, you know, what about like, you know, the novels that I read in college that like really made me who I am, like all the Paul Auster novels. I am not going to consult them ever. I'm real. I really hardly ever reread books. That's just not what I do. Um, uh, what do, do I keep Jane Austen? No, right. No. Or I mean, who, who are the books for? Yeah. I, I always think about in graduate school, there's a certain cachet to having like the older book cover, mm-hmm. right? That like, if you're, if you're doing Foucault, you can tell who already had that book because they have like the, the book cover that's like five years ago and mm-hmm. everyone has like the new redesign from like whatever vintage did last week. Um, and I do feel like that particular form of book culture is literally and figuratively gone, which, you know, is, is sort of a moment that I, I'm already nostalgic for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, I, like I can sort of recommend techniques. Like you do one thing where you put things in a box and then you put the box away. And if after a month or two months or six months or however long it is, you don't miss it, you can send it away. Um, but it's, it's really sad to me. I mean, like the, the saddest place in the world is like the book section of a thrift shop where, you know, these books have kind of not just gone to die, but to languish. Mm. They've kind of, they're back there with like the broken pottery and like the scratched CDs and, you know, and it's, and we do have this crisis of trash, right? I mean, we have this crisis where there's just too much trash and we have this crisis where there's just too much information and we have to, like, it it feels very much like we kind of have a simultaneous physical and virtual crisis that's, that's always kind of been there, but has now kind of reached this sort of ecological catastrophe point. And like, there's, I mean, the example with the with the the data is that, um, and I I haven't checked this fact in a little while, so I, I may have, I may be misremembering it slightly, but um, like Steven Spielberg's Shoah project, um, where he recorded the testimony of Holocaust survivors, um, for one person to watch it would take sixty years. Wow. No one, no one will ever be able to take in the entirety of that collection any more than anyone can take in the entirety of Facebook. Mm. Um, you can read every Paul Oster novel, right? I mean, Middlemarch takes some time, but mm-hmm. you can work your way through George Eliot and you can kind of have a sense of completeness. Um, but I, maybe that would be what I would, I would say, whatever gives you a sense of kind of, like maybe not sparking joy, mm-hmm. but maybe what like makes you feel whole or sort of what makes you feel complete. Like if, if not having the book will feel like there's a part of you that's gone away, then keep that book. I mean, Middlemarch is a perfect example. For many, many years when people would say, what is your favorite book? Middlemarch was the answer. Um, Middlemarch is not a book that's going to disappear in my lifetime. Right. 
So it just becomes so interesting, you know, like what is the purpose right now of the book as a physical object to me? Um, And I think about what you said about weight training and like it feels good to move through the world in a strong body. I think it feels good to me to move through the world with fewer possessions, including books, um, or maybe even especially books. But there's such a, that is so um, like antithetical to this other sense of myself as a person who is made of books, who, who makes is, books. Who makes books. Out and of who, herself. Yes, and who... You know, to, to, you know, I felt this way a little bit like when, when, when my kids started to not be physically attached to me mm-hmm. and I would go out into the world and I would, and people would like talk to me and as if I were a single person, not single as in sexually <laughs> no, no, available, no, no. but like a one the other side entity. Of the mirror stage. Yeah. <laughs> right. And <laughs> I was like. now a person again instead right. of a mother providing right. for this unity. But I was like, no, 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 no. Don't talk to me. Don't listen to me. Don't. I'm a dyad. I'm a triad. I'm. A, but but my other parts are missing. And I think that that that's how I feel about my books. Like you know, nobody can see them. But but you know, there are these like invisible umbilical cords to all of these different books. And when I see them on the shelf, and you know, I I have I, it. It's I don't know if it sparks joy. It's but it it's like a it's like looking through you know photographs. Uh, of a family album, and I, I'm not going to throw away the photographs. One of the things that's so weird for those of us who remember kind of the pre-internet age and the pre before everything was screens mm-hmm. um, is that everything was embodied. That a CD right. came in a case. Um, the way that we talk about books has everything to do with bodies. There are headers, there mm. are footers, right? That that we really do think about kind of these externalized objects as having this material reality in the same way that we do. Um, And so if letting that go feels like you restore a certain kind of autonomy, Mm. there's a certain kind of lightness in your body to not carrying these other bodies, but knowing you can get them back. I mean, Mm -hmm. knowing you can order a Middlemarch. If you you want Middlemarch as a Barnes & Noble classic in a leather bound, whatever, you can get it if you want it. And, you know... um, it won't be the version that you read. And you know, if, and if that's what you want, then hold on to it. But if, if you're going to feel a lightness, I mean, I, have you ever, did, I mean, after, have you ever cleaned or like gone through someone's stuff after they die? Yeah, uh, my mom's. Yeah. And I, and I developed uh, uh, this thing that, that lasted for quite a long time where I would see people on the street and I would just, I couldn't stop it. I would look at them and I would and I would look at their clothes and I would think trash, goodwill, keep. I mean, I could I couldn't see physical objects in any other way. Yeah, I I mean, I had after I went through my mother's things, um all of my stuff looked like trash. Mhm. I was just like, "Oh, this is" and my mother would say it. Like my mother would say like it's just stuff for you to go through after I die. Yeah. Um and then it happened. And then, but it didn't last. And and I do think that in the 90s, 
there was this sort of collecting mania that like I was coming into consciousness at a time when your beanie babies were going to be worth, you know, millions of dollars if you just held on and your comic books were going to put your kids through college. And there was this, you know, that in the 1990s, the detritus, particularly of the 50s and 60s, um, became suddenly very, very valuable. And even when I moved to New York in 2000, there were tons of stores where you could get, you know, like lots of Beatles memorabilia and pay like a huge amount of money for like gas station glasses and, you know, Burger King promotions and stuff like that. And, and it, it went away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also went away because you can have anything you want. With the internet, you can have anything you want. If you, it's not true, but um, it, I, I really wanted a Violator t-shirt, the, the Depeche Mode album. Like mm-hmm. I saw the Faith and Devotion tour, but I really wanted to see Violator and I really wanted to have a t-shirt from the Violator tour and it was impossible. Now, Nordstrom Rack will sell it back to me for half price. Um, <laughs> that, that the, the, you know, the, but that kind of attachment to the physical object that, you know, like in high school, you wear the band's T-shirt mm-hmm. to school the day after you saw them in concert. And that's a kind of physical object that marks a kind of status and communicates a kind of information. I, I think that that's useless now. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's kind of transferred to... Instagram, but, but also in like ways that are horrible, like where you're thinking more about whether your food will photograph than how it tastes, Yeah, like, you know, in these sort of like weird, gross ways. So the question is, do you let go of the books? I think and what I heard, it, what I heard in your answer was yes, yeah. for me, not for everyone, certainly. Yeah. But yes, and that's that's really helpful. I, I feel like you're kind of asking for permission. Yes, to I am. The I'm at, that's exactly right. I didn't know I was asking, but I was. I was like, you know what? If Jason Schneiderman gives me permission, I can take that. I can't quite take it from Marie Kondo, although I appreciate what she's done for me. But I. But I think that's exactly right. I, I give you permission. Okay. Should we end on that? Yeah. All right, thank you so much. This has been episode 95 of Commonplace with Jason Schneiderman. This episode was produced by the Commonplace team, me, Rachel Zucker, Valentin Conady, Langa Chinyoka, Nancy Wan, and Christine LaRusso. The music you're listening to is composed and performed by Judah Gorin. Judah just recently released his first EP. It's called Just For Now, and you can find the EP by searching Judah Gorin on Spotify or wherever you stream or download music. Many thanks to Red Hen Press, Oxford University Press, Ashland Poetry Press, Four Way Books, Princeton University Press, Simon & Schuster, and all the presses and publishers that keep our patrons in amazing books. Thank you, thank you to our patrons and to you, dear listener. Be safe, be well, celebrate if you feel like it, and thank you for listening.